day, and welcome to Cities to Love, a podcast tour of our favorite albums from our favorite cities. I'm Taylor Ruckel. And I'm Hayden Merrick. And today, we're coming to you from a land down under, where the only thing bigger than the spiders are the tunes. Specifically, we're here to talk about Melbourne, Australia, which is the second largest city by population after Sydney. It is the capital of the province of Victoria. It's built on the indigenous lands of the Kulin Nation. Uh, the indigenous name for the area is Narm. And it's the home of the Royal Botanic Gardens and the Melbourne Cricket Grounds, which are the largest and oldest sporting venue in the country, with a capacity of over 100,000, according to TripAdvisor. Uh, Melbourne is also informally considered the cultural capital of Australia, so we're in luck on the music front this week. Who are our notable residents, Taylor? Hit me with our starting lineup. Well, first of all, Kylie Minogue was born and raised there, which, you know, that alone would qualify any city for cultural capital status. Um, so was Flea of Red Hot Chili Pepper fame, which maybe cancels that out. We've got <laughs> Dame Olivia Newton-John, grew up in Melbourne. Um, it's been the home of Crowded House, Men at Work, more recently Jet, The Temper Trap, Gautier, Vance Joy. Do you remember Vance Joy? I, I'm sorry, Vance, I don't remember ah. you. We'll talk after the show. Um, <laughs> got some current indie darlings like Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever, Tropical Fuckstorm. The rapper Sampa the Great lived there at one point. Um, have you ever been to Melbourne, Hayden? Ever made it down under? I've never made it down under. Uh, I do have a friend from Melbourne, though, who came and visited me a few years back after we met in San Francisco. She was politely unimpressed by Brighton, which I think is a testament to how cool melbourne is melbourne and it's hyper hip art scene it's brighter than brighton is what you're saying is that possible i think it could be possible i haven't been to australia either so i can't confirm one way or the other but i did have the opportunity to interview a great post-punk band from melbourne a couple years ago if i can shamelessly plug a post-trash article while i'm here uh, it's this band called pinch points and they were kind enough to negotiate the 16 hour time difference for a zoom call so major <laughs> shout out to them what time was that for you I don't even remember. It might have been one of these things where I do, you know, my ridiculous uh, late night on the East Coast. Yeah, anyway. so I don't know. It was either something where I was it was four a.m. for me, or it was two p.m. for me. It's it's always one of those. I looked it up, and Melbourne is around ten thousand miles from DC, mm-hmm. and ten thousand miles from Brighton. So mm-hmm. here we go. We found our equidistant meetup point because that's how sounds distance works. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sounds perfect. <laughs> I'll bring some DC half smokes. You bring some brown English ale. Throw some some <laughs> throw some shrimp on the Barbie. Put a classic album on the hi-fi. To follow along with our focus tracks, check out the Cities to Love playlist on Spotify and YouTube. You can find links in the episode description. Okay, into our first classic pick, Taylor. You start the show. Yeah, my classic pick is the album Primitive Calculators and Friends, 1979 to 1982. And Hayden wanted me to tell you that the first thing I wrote in our shared document about the record was the following bracketed comment, quote, I'm sorry in advance for once again subjecting you to so much unlistenable noise. I guess everybody listening probably deserves that too, that that preface, that warning. Hey, at least they're honest because... Uh, the intro the live track signals by saying this next song is really just a drone um in all seriousness it has advertised 
This thing really rules, though, and I never would have chosen this myself. So thank you once again, right off the bat, for furthering my music horizons. More than probably anyone, although shout out to my friend Ricky, who told me about Green Day in year four. He I'll might, never he might have I'll beat. never quite measure up to Ricky, but I'm doing my best. And, you know, to be fair, I'm pushing us both here because this record is a little bit much even for me, if I'm being honest. It, the chaos of it, the atonality of it. This is an archival release, which we love on this show. Primitive Calculators were a Melbourne-based synth-punk band. Stylistically, think something like Suicide or Throbbing Gristle, that kind of early industrial thing. And they were part of the city's post-punk scene in the late 70s and early 80s, which was based around the St. Kilda area, along with bands like Whirly World and... This one's tough. It's... Or... Tick, tick, tick. Yeah, that is... They stylized the name of their band as three different arrows. So... It was intentionally pretentious, is how they describe it. Um, but this is a wave of bands that were very influenced by bands like the Velvet Underground and the Ramones, Television, the Stooges, you know, as on other continents, this sort of um, movement spreads. Film director Richard Lowenstein made a movie based on this moment in Melbourne music and called it Dogs in Space. It stars Michael Hutchins from NXS. It features the music of Primitive Calculators, as well as Nick Cave's band, The Boys Next Door, put a pin in that. We'll talk about them later. That movie came out in 1986. And then in 2009, Lowenstein followed it up with an actual documentary that was part retrospective on the making of Dogs in Space, part retrospective of the actual post-punk scene that inspired it. That movie is called We're Living on Dog Food, of course, named after a line from the Iggy Pop song, Dog Food, um, which was a great watch. Highly recommend checking that documentary out. Insofar as there is a unifying ideology to this scene, it's this wave of young people who were disillusioned by what was seen as the failure of rock and of the hippie movement to bring about the social revolution. Primitive calculators, for their part, were explicitly communist, and like a lot of musicians in Melbourne at the time, they were living on the dole, which is to say government unemployment benefits. Stuart Grant from Primitive Calculators actually brings this up in the documentary, and his line is, the state paid us to reject it, which is just an outstanding outstanding way of framing it. They have a real sense of humor about about the scene and their place in it and the kind of music that they made, which is um, really enjoyable to hear them kind of recount. Yeah. But that political ethos also manifested in this DIY approach to making music and this kind of local phenomenon that they spearheaded, which is now kind of referred to as Melbourne's little band scene. This was a series of shows they put on called little band nights where people would put together what they described as disposable bands for 15 minute sets each and anyone who wanted to play was allowed to play and also allowed to use primitive calculators equipment with the condition that none of these little bands were supposed to play more than once or twice. So you do it, you break up, you start over and do something else. You form a band as a short-term experiment rather than a job or rather than a processed commercial product. And so this kind of encourages people to switch up their instrumental roles, make sounds they otherwise wouldn't. I'm imagining that if you click with a certain lineup and you want to keep it going you just be ostracized like <laughs> yes. like getting banned from a you know church or something it's like green day getting kicked out of gilman right it's like no 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 you played you've played yeah. two shows already you're at your limit we're cutting you off <laughs> <laughs> hit me again this uh this archival compilation primitive calculators and friends was released in 2007 i think it's the most available record of the little bands that i could find it includes Primitive Calculators, one official studio single, plus some live and rehearsal tracks, but also the Little Band EP, which was this four-band split they released in 1980, 
featuring little bands by the names of uh, Too Fat to Fit Through the Door was one. You have Morpians, The Take, Ronnie and the Rhythm Boys. They sound like joke band names. I know. It sounds then, like if I'm looking at... Sometimes this is what it looks like if I look at a list of like calls for um, reviews or whatever, and it just sounds like nonsense. <laughs> like It's all bands I've never heard of before. Um, Ronnie and the Rhythm Boys. Yeah. Yes. Other other ones on this uh, track list. We've got Zayayay, or maybe it's Zayayay. I'm not, not quite sure. There's one called The Egg. Uh, there's a band on this thing called Thrush and the Cunts. My mom listens to this podcast, so I just want to say sorry, mom, but that is the name of the band. Um, anyway, <laughs> moving on. The album cover shows you kind of the fluid, free-for-all nature of this scene. Uh, it credits the Central Primitive Calculator members, Stuart, David, Denise, and Frank. And then below that, Marcus, Michael, Marie, Ollie, Jules, Marion, Marissa, Tom, Wendy, Lee, John, and Kelly. Good night, John boy. <laughs> uh, all of that aside... We should talk more about the sound of this record beyond just unlistenable noise. The listening experience of the primitive calculators. Yeah, for for what it's worth, the band name is incredibly apt because it is very primitive sounding music. Uh, but it's also got those like malfunctioning synth sounds that are digital sounding and calculator-esque, if you will. Yeah, it's this combination of like what was at the time cutting edge technology and then primal improvisational noise. And uh, what I love about this album is the recordings really give you a sense of the anarchy of the live shows, the little band nights themselves. There's a track on this called one, two, three, four by thrush and the cunts. And it starts with a band member saying, we haven't got any words for the first song. So if anyone wants to come up and (laughs) sing some words and then they just kind of launch into it. Yeah. Also this album, I think prompted one of my favorite messages I've ever received from you, Hayden, to take our listeners behind the scenes a little bit, since I work nights on the East Coast and you're in the UK, I'm usually going to bed right around the time you're getting up and listening to music. So a few days after I told you I wanted to talk about primitive calculators, just as I'm falling asleep, my phone buzzes and it's a message from you that just says, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Is that better than uh, Holy Dicks? Though? It's pretty good. It's in the pantheon of all time great yeah. reactions to things that I've told you to listen to. Yeah, I yeah. I think I I like I hope I followed it up with more than just that. Yeah, um. <laughs> no, you you told me what you were listening to that that caused that. But you and, knew uh, you just knew yeah. right away though. I'm sure I knew right away. I actually had forgotten about this song when I when I recommended the album for the show. Um, oh there's yeah, there's a primitive calculators cover of shout. It is as in just, you as in you make me wanna. Yeah, uh, it's just completely horrendous. It's pure eardrum destruction is the sound of the world ending is a car wreck where you can't look away (laughs) it's guttural incessant screaming and shouting there are no drums there is one high-pitched oscillating trembling synth tone it's so horrible but amazing and (laughs) hilarious and admirable um in his book sonic life thurston moore talks about gigs in the early days of post-punk and no wave where bands would do stuff like this at just unlistenable volumes and i i found oh are we about to have a reading from thurston moore's book yeah i have i have the book out here i have the book out here people and it's very funny he says we're at we're at noise fest in new york and there's a duo named avoidance behavior quote as they permeated the air with their sonic destruction a local resident appeared at the door of the gallery, a look of shell shock on her face. 
I approached her to see if she was okay and she yelled at me in disbelief and horror. <laughs> what is this? I live on the next block and I thought there was an accident outside. What in God's name is going on? She was shuddering, tears welling in her eyes. I explained to the woman, dressed in a robe and house slippers, that we were having an experimental music night. She shook her head, pointing to the people with their ears plugged, as Lee and David nonchalantly emitted more and more screeching frequencies. And she said, They're going to die! <laughs> they shouldn't be in here listening to that. What the hell is this? I just think that is just completely hilarious. Yeah, that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of what's going on here. You have some real, like intercontinental resonance happening at yeah. New York City and with Melbourne at this point. There's a bit in the documentary where primitive calculators talk about playing at the Crystal Ballroom in Melbourne. And basically, it sounds kind of like that. Like they say people would stand in the back with their fingers in their ears. Um, but they were going for that. You know, there's another Golden Stewart Grant quote from uh, Living on Dog Food, the documentary, where he says, we started to try actually to make music that would hurt people, making the sounds as brutal and horrible as possible, making the drum beats as repetitive and fast as possible, and tried to get it ugly. We were aiming for total precision and purity. We were utterly dedicated. And yet, <laughs> you hear light applause on the live tracks. So there were at least some people who were interested or, you know, at least polite enough to stay in the room, even through their cover of Shout. Other covers on this compilation include Hey Joe... And also the Flintstones theme, go figure. But what is our featured track, Taylor? Yeah, that's primitive, I guess. That's appropriate. I'm torn between <laughs> wanting to inflict the most unlistenable noise on our listeners, which is probably the most honest representation of this compilation, or giving everybody something that could plausibly be called music. I am going to go with the latter. I'm going to recommend the song Summer by a little band called The Take. I love calling them little bands because you get to say fun little things like <laughs> I want to. I want to tell you about a little band called The Take, and it's true, and it's not patronizing because they are a little band. Because they are a little band. According to the Discogs credits, this one was made up of Frank Levice, Marissa Sturp, and Tom Hoy, uh, in this band, this little I, band, The Take. Yeah, in this song, like when I put this song on, I thought there was a, a lorry backing up outside because there's a persistent beeping tone that runs through the whole thing. <laughs> so it's a step up from a car accident, at least. Yes, precisely. Very good. Um, yeah, and then other than that, interestingly, it's just bass and drums, which kind of reminded me of some of our Athens bands who were using just bass and drums um, yeah. in this kind of like post-punk sound. So I guess it's the same era, just 10,000 miles away. <laughs> and the rest of the album, though, does not remind me of them. It's just this song. No, I don't really hear Oh OK covering any of these other songs. But um, still, even you know, even if I think this compilation is so unlistenable at points, and I do stand by that, I also admire it in a way. I think it's genuinely a really cool application of the DIY ethos. And, you know, you can't help but respect their confrontational attitude. There is a bio of theirs uh, from their self-titled live album, which refers to that kind of spirit as their humorously belligerent Australian mindset. And Summer is that humorously belligerent Australian mindset in its most accessible form, I guess. Great song. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 43, Summer by The Take. Meanwhile, also in Melbourne, around the same time, We've got another classic pick cropping up. So Hayden, why don't you tell me about, about your selection? 
Yes, my selection for something classic is by a band called The Birthday Party. They sound fun, they sound happy and cheerful. Sounds like a nice change of pace. Yeah. The album, though, is called Junkyard, and this was released in 1982. You may know The Birthday Party from their front person, Nick Cave, not Cage. Ah, yes. So, that's right. Before he was the Vampire of Hove, Nick Cave was the monster of Melbourne, you could say. Or I guess, like, the gnashing teeth of Narm, maybe. Both good. Yes, exactly. It's really funny to me to see the discrepancy between the monthly listeners for The Bad Seeds and The Birthday Party, which... For the bad seeds, you know, on on Spotify, it's about three point five million, and then for the birthday party, you've got about fifty thousand. A little bit, a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the birthday party sound nothing like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Uh, to be fair to them both, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like it is quite amazing. This is the same guy, and you know, we'll get into the sound a bit more, but. First, the biography, because the birthday party are really steeped in lore. Yes. Um, They made, well, two albums, but three if you count their debut album, which was actually released under the name The Boys Next Door. Um, And then they broke up within a few years before any of them had turned 25. Both albums um, were made after the birthday party returned to their hometown of Melbourne after they'd been living in destitute conditions in London. Apparently, this is funny to me, they were lured over to England after reading the NME and how it covered London's music scene, uh, made it look so promising and exciting. And then also that, you know, on the flip side of that, they didn't feel accepted in Melbourne, like their music was too niche to establish a big following. Um, but then they get to London and they hate it basically they're really disappointed uh they were broke some of the band members were addicted to heroin they were living in a dilapidated old house in Bayswater, which now is like hilarious like what this would be so far out now but um yeah they were hanging around with a band the fool but otherwise uh, which makes sense um right but apart from that were very isolated, Cave has said, partly because their heroin use scared people off, uh, like venues and labels and other bands, etc. But um, yeah, there's a there's a good retrospective on the birthday party in Far Out magazine, where that's where that quote, quote is pulled from. And then the other side of their isolation is because, as the director of the Mutiny in Heaven documentary, Ian White says... The band were enigmatic because they were such an odd contradiction of different things. Intelligent and literary, yet visceral and brutal. Seeing them when they were bored or in a bad mood was as good as seeing them at the peak of their game. I'd like to think our podcast is like that too. (laughs) (laughs) We're never in a bad mood. Never. I mean, we're certainly never bored here, are we? No. So much music. So little time. Also, on a gig poster back in the day, they were called the most violent band in the world. And this label has followed them through their various reappraisals, etc. But at the time, unfortunately, it led neo-Nazis and thugs to start Mm. attending their gigs to basically cause mayhem and fight, just compounding this isolation and outsider-ness. 
Uh, the band, just to be clear, weren't Nazis. Hopefully goes without saying. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but um, back in Mel- Melbourne, they became a central force in the post-punk scene that orbited the venue you mentioned before, the Crystal Ballroom yes. in uh, that St. Kilda suburb. Yes. You know who else was part of that scene and also hated the birthday party? <laughs> it's our good friends, the Primitive Calculators. You know. <laughs> yeah, I remember You them. know them. You love them. Uh, it was a mutual hatred, according to Roland Howard from uh, from the birthday party. Nick Cave and company were kind of seen as like the rich kid posers from the other side of town. There's a line from the uh, documentary where uh, the, the uh, living on dog food documentary I mentioned in the last segment mm-hmm. where Stuart Grant from Primitive Calculator says the first time we saw those guys play, they were doing David Bowie covers. And that was a really huge divide between us and a lot of the other bands in Melbourne at that time. They came out of this English art school kind of ethos. To me, there was nothing more odious in the world than David Bowie. We hated them. <laughs> wow. And of course, you know, I have to include the other side of this, which is that in reference to Primitive Calculator's whole deal, mm-hmm. Roland Howard said, if their intention was to be hated, they certainly achieved that on a personal level as well. So Zing. very tense, a lot of drama in this scene at the time. Yeah. Of course, one of the only Primitive Calculator's releases we have that even exists, their self-titled album, is a live recording of a show where they opened for the birthday party. So they were they mm. were rubbing elbows pretty closely i think in music scenes that always tends to lead to tension my classic pick is the album junkyard and it's the birthday party's final album Mm. written in the studio the band wanted to sound like trash quote (laughs) a scratchy trebly sound um and it and it is you know it's incisive and biting antisocial unfriendly it sounds almost improvisational or at least not labored over and stuck mm. together haphazardly in the studio, presumably against a clock, um, because, you know, this is a indie band, essentially. Right. It's still quite long, even despite that, though, with 47 minutes over 10 songs. Um, but for all that, it's far more accessible than Primitive Calculators. <laughs> far more. Far more. Far more. <laughs> There are there are melodies in there. They're just about. They're contorted and yowled and funhouse mirrored. You called it. What did you call it? Yeah, the phrase I used is thoroughly macabre post-punk shock rock. To me, it's kind of like Misfits yeah. by way of the pop group. Um, I think also a little bit of foreshadowing of the Pixies. There's that song, Six Inch Gold Blade, and there's this refrain where, you know, it's Nick Cave just sort of screaming, shake, over and over again. <laughs> And it kind of reminds me of uh, Tame by Pixies, that kind of howling refrain. Yeah, spot on. It is very tame, ironically. I think, though, my favorite part of this whole record is the end of Junkyard, uh, the song Junkyard, which is the end of the album in its original form without the extra CD tracks. And Nick Cave finishes screaming and immediately just starts coughing as everything else (laughs) in the track fades out. And I love that they left that in. It definitely speaks to the improvisational feel that you're referring to, the roughness Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, I like that too. I also am not sure what you have in mind for a featured track, but we have to talk about the song Release the Bats. Oh, she says, horror vampire, bat bite, horror vampire, how I wish those bats would bite. Yes. Is that your favorite track, Drekken? I'm. I can't believe it's not on the original release because it is <laughs> one of the best, one of the most accessible. It's like almost squid via the fall with... David Byrne doing his like possessed sermon <laughs> shtick over the top. 
I do think it's the most memorable track on this record, just because of Nick Cave at the end yelling, Sex Vampire! It's very... (laughs) (laughs) You don't forget that. Um, But also, I don't know, it does sound a little bit like a novelty song, which I think it kind of was for these guys anyway. It feels sort of tongue-in-cheek, like they're kind of clowning on the goth scene. But of course... The song has been reclaimed as goth canon. There was uh, uh, an NME list of the best goth songs ever. I guess they would be very proud of that, that they eventually made it to the top of the NME. Hmm. But uh, they titled this list, Release the Bats, and they put this song at number seven. So, oh, good there you go. Find. Well, that's a, a definitely one that would work as a feature track. The one I had down, if not, is... Um, from the original album, at least, I suppose, Release the Bats, I don't believe it's actually on the original No, no, it was uh, a standalone album. single that got kind of folded in afterwards. Yeah, right. Uh, instead, then, I've gone for the spacious, eerie Several Sins, which is sort of the midpoint breather, built around a slow, hypnotic bass line and Cave doing his vampiric <laughs> incantations. <laughs> following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 44, Several Sins by The Birthday Party. Taylor, everyone knows us as indie rock darlings. That's what that's what the fans are saying. That's what they but say. We're not one note, and no. your pick for something current proves that, evidences that. What have you got for us? <laughs> we have depth. We have the range. My current pick is a record called Systemic by the band Divide and Dissolve. It came out in 2023. And uh, this is the fourth LP by the instrumental neoclassical slash drone slash doom metal duo of saxophone and guitar player Takaya Reed and drummer Sylvie Neal. Small correction. Sylvie Neal has been replaced by Scarlet Shred as of following this album. Good to know. So she's the current drummer now. In any case, it's another first for Cities to Love. We're hip-hop heads and metalheads now. <laughs> so right up front, Hayden, let's talk about cred. Do you have any background with heavy metal? Because for me, it's a bit of a blind spot that I've been working on kind of intermittently. Yeah, other than my short stint as a roadie for Iron Maiden, right? heavy metal is pretty much a blind spot for me, <laughs> I'm afraid. Aside from that, yeah. Um, I'm more comfortable with the drone stuff, I think the less vocal oriented stuff right how about yourself yeah about the same i've gotten into some of the early like you know thrash and uh new wave of british heavy metal stuff but other than that it's not something that i keep up to date with super closely um but even though i'm not super in touch with this genre in this scene i had definitely heard of divide and dissolve before so i wanted to retrace my steps a little bit here you know we're out of our usual lane but not that far out it turns out Hmm. systemic was produced by ruben nielsen of unknown mortal orchestra who also worked with them on their last record which was called gaslit also the great poet musician rapper more mother did a remix of the divide and dissolve song mental gymnastics from gaslit and i love more mother so this really is a band i should have gotten to sooner just based on other people in their sphere but i found out they were from melbourne in the research for this episode and i thought yeah metal i don't know not necessarily my area um but then i heard the record uh and i really liked it you know systemic is bookended by these really gorgeous looping string and woodwind pieces and then in the middle big slow punchy drums roaring guitar distortion yeah the good stuff 
and uh, I was curious what your reaction was going to be. I forgot, you know, that you were a uh, that you were a roadie. And uh, since this is <laughs> a little bit outside our usual comfort zone, you know, I was so like, "What's Hayden going to think about this?" But it turns out you're cooler than me, and you've seen this band live before. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't know what the odds are, but I happen to have seen this band almost accidentally at End of the Road Festival last year. Um, I went with a group of people from Loud and Quiet magazine. And I was by myself en route somewhere. I can't remember who I was going to see, but um, I bumped into Luke, the deputy editor, and he said, come see this band. They're extremely heavy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm scared. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like, you know, a mosh pit and stuff, but um, that was not the vibe at all. It was just captivating and like, like literally like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um yeah, Reed opened the set by acknowledging the sacred land the festival site was erected on. And then, yeah, a did a little intro to each song explaining its origin and where their, where the song's force and anger was directed. Um, because it's all wordless, it's yes. still highly political and it's still rooted in activism. And, you know, they have a wall of amps on stage that's kind of... The conduit for that emotion but i think you will get a bit more into that in a moment but oh yes oh yes i found it interesting as well their merch didn't have their band name on huh it's like uh one color t-shirts with phrases like dismantle colonial borders or destroy white supremacy mm. and uh, my friend tristan from loud and quiet reviewed the set and it is on the website so i'd recommend checking that out he calls he calls it terrified and terrifying, which I think is a very smart summation. Hmm. And then um, despite seeing them live, I hadn't heard the record until we started planning this episode. So going in to listening to it, I was wondering like, when should I listen to this? What is the right setting right. to listen to this? But I opted for doing the dishes, which is often your go-to. So I thought that would be a good bet. Yeah, that's a classic listening scenario <laughs> for me. I had this one on while I was taking out the trash one night at 3 a.m. Um, really good for keeping warm in the cold, the dark, you know, it was a it was a really it's a it's a very dark album. And so I think it, if anything, like my very specific and very weird, you know, place I sometimes listen to albums made me very well, well primed to receive this. Yeah, maybe. A, yeah, like a, a, a walk around in the dark by yourself would yes, probably be yeah. fitting. Some some light snow falling, maybe. Yeah. It's it struck me that like via the controlled studio environment, it's so much easier to hear things like the overtones of her guitar uh, as well. Because uh -huh. live it was very much a wall and the distortion was so thick and it was so powerful and loud, but I picked up on the subtleties a lot more mm. through listening to the record. It's very interesting, and I think it must just be a matter of getting different things from different versions of this record and these songs. I'm because I'm jealous that you've seen them live because I I like the record. I it's really it was a great listen. Um, and having heard it on headphones, I was struck by kind of the more holistic physical impact of the record, just like the heaviness and the atmosphere and the sheer resolve it takes to play these slow, deliberate tempos for three to five minutes at a time, you know, putting one cymbal crash after another, letting one of these huge sustained chords and all the distortion harmonics 
just feedback just the right amount of time. Mm -hmm. As a musician, I admire that on the level of technique because anytime I plug in a guitar, I I'm I really struggle to keep things that precise and restrained. And then as a listener, it's just mesmerizing. But I think that both of these are very crucial parts of the experience. Like Takaya Reed uses two guitar amp stacks and two bass amp stacks. You mentioned, you know, um, the walls <laughs> to kind of make the guitar sound as huge as possible live. Yeah. There's also a fascinating interview with the online magazine 15 Questions from before the album Gaslit came out, where Sylvie Neal talks about all the ways that she sculpted the drum sounds to make it more resonant. She would downtune drums to make them deeper instead of the rack toms, which are the small ones that go on the cymbal stands if people aren't familiar with drums. She uses two floor toms instead of one. In other words, the big yeah. freestanding ones because they sound deeper and you know, beyond that, she would tune the snare drum to resonate with Takaya Reed's guitars at the you know right frequency. She talks in this interview about the singing overtones of the ride cymbal, but she also talks about developing her drumming style through the practice of yoga. And she says, music is not an exclusively audible art form. We are completely invested in communicating with sonic vibrations, which are received not just in the ear, but the entire body. The most exciting thing that sound frequencies do is communicate. And uh, in an interview with The Guardian from last year, Takaya Reed says something very similar. She says, my experience with communication is you mostly don't need words. Oh, that's such a good quote. Yeah. Talking about the, the instrumental nature of this and also just what they want you to kind of feel, which is this 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 overall sense of resonating with the music. And I guess whether you're in you're in person and you feel that physically or whether you're on headphones and you can hear the subtleties of it. I think both are versions of that, mm -hmm. which also brings us back to the messaging of these songs, which you alluded to because there are no lyrics, but that doesn't mean that they're not about things. Reed and Neil met in Australia, but they come from different parts of the world and different indigenous backgrounds. Neil is Maori and Reed is Cherokee and their music draws on that shared experience and on their belief in decolonization and indigenous sovereignty and seeking justice for marginalized peoples. The album title Systemic alludes to this, of course, and the struggle with systems of violence. And I think the way they deliver that message is powerful. You know, the idea that whether you put it into words or not, the state of the world and your experiences in it are going to shape the music that you make. And to be clear, you know, as you as you mentioned, Takaya Reed does put it into words and in interviews and live shows on their merch, things like that. She uses the time between songs to call for an end to genocide, colonization of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I watched a set of theirs from Bologna, Italy in 2022, where she lays all of that out and then summarizes it by saying, we just believe in a better world, basically. Yeah, it's interesting how many different ways you could read the music as being optimistic and hopeful or it's like just grief and, you know, expelling yes. grief. And I think it's both, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it's also maybe not quite right to say that there are no lyrics because every album also includes a spoken word piece by the poet Minori Sanchez Fung. And on this record, it's the track Kingdom of Fear, which is one of my favorites on this record, just for the way that the the keys and the occasional drum beats and the guitar motif punctuate this poem and vice versa. There's so much tension there and the way that they're in conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the outlier for sure. Is that yes. the one you're going for as a featured track? No, because it is such an outlier. I did want to point people to the song Blood Quantum, which is the second track on the record. 
uh, and just for the way that it combines this album's two different modes, because it opens with this, again, really gorgeous string motif, and then the guitar and drums just erupt, just just come bursting out. Mm. The term blood quantum refers to the amount of indigenous blood a person has, which is quantified to verify a person's identity or determine their claim to tribal citizenship. And that usage meaning as dictated by the U.S. federal government, which is just one example of, you know, a system of discrimination that makes up the kind of fabric of the world as as divide and dissolve are responding to it. And that Guardian article I mentioned, Takaya Reed says, quote, it's wild how violent these systems are and how they continue to perpetuate poverty, suffering and trauma. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 45, Blood Quantum by Divide and Dissolve. So we have another current pick to get to, and I'm very, very looking forward, Hayden, to hearing your pronunciation of this band name. Yeah. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's quite a, a British word, stroppy. Um the band is called the Stroppies. The Stroppies. The oh right now you've said that it all makes sense. It's actually very Australian. It sounds very Australian, doesn't it? Oh yeah, Stroppy. I'd always thought of that as like a one of those silly English words like rubbish. And I think so it I'm is. Stroppy we'll, and it's all rubbish. <laughs> we'll get to that, but I just love <laughs> the way it sounds with. At the very least, my bad fake Australian accent. You know, it's, yeah. it's fun to say. It's fun to say that way. The strawberries. Yeah, that's your your Australian accent is pretty good. Just that one word, though. I don't ask me. For, don't ask me for a second one, please. Mm. All you need is that like gateway word, though, and then it unlocks all the other words. So, the Oxford English Dictionary defines levity. <laughs> <laughs> As humour or lack of seriousness, especially during a serious occasion, e.g. a brief moment of levity amid the solemn proceedings. That is the title of my current pick album. It's called Levity by the Dole Wave proponents, the Stroppies. Yes. The world feels strange and in turn making pop music feels even stranger. A healthy dose of levity had to be employed in order to find meaning in the process. That's a quote from the bassist and co-vocalist of the Stroppies, Claudia Surfati. The definition that I just read also opens their Bandcamp bio. Before we get a bit into the band, you may have wondered, Taylor, about that word dull wave. I snuck in there. Yes, yes. Let's get another definition going, please. More definitions. Definitions on definitions. If we're talking about music from Australia, then we need to touch on this curiously named subgenre. Move over, bedroom pop. Move over, dream gaze. Out of here. There's a new kid in town, and he is penniless and proud. (laughs) Dull wave, then. This is music that sounds slightly doubtful of itself and its surroundings. Recalcitrant and ramshackle, writes The Guardian's Everett True during a long-form piece on the Australian subgenre. It's music that traces a lineage back through Australian and New Zealand alternative culture to the Velvet Underground and Bob Dylan, he continues. 
Yes, we mentioned earlier that Primitive Calculators and other bands of their time were literally on the dole and also drawing on some similar kind of um, touchstones in their influences. But I assume that this name and this scene came much later. And so where did we where did we get the term dole way? We've had the definition. Give me some etymology here. <laughs> yeah, the term originated on message boards of the music site Mess and Noise in the 2010s. And yes, it refers to the supposed financial status of the bands involved i.e on the dole i.e unemployed and receiving government benefits as you mentioned earlier i believe you yanks will call it welfare that's in which about, case yeah, that's right this would be welfare wave which hey that's not bad it's a nice little alliteration welfare wave yeah so it kind of started off as a joke um and a kind of belittling joke really right but right. then the bands themselves adopted slash reclaimed this term dole wave because every you know you got to have one and it's a helpful unifier i think yeah totally and a curiosity i had is is it at all helpful to draw a parallel to Britpop here you know given this idea of kind of emphasizing the australianness of it all in line with Britpop being about playing up britishness yeah i think that's a really good point and maybe this quote from max Easton, who is the creator of Barely Human, a zine, and a podcast series exploring underground music's ties to counterculture and subculture. Sorry, that was a really long aside, but Max Easton has a quote that I think is appropriate to bring in here. He says that it's an attempt at reclaiming a cultural identity in a time where it is confused and diluted by the many conflicting ideas that surround everyone's idea of Australia. You may want to wear a blue singlet, but your uncle does too, and he's a racist embarrassment at the family dinner table. You want to embrace the notion of classic Australian, but you don't want to alienate the multicultural beauty of the people around you. Where does that leave you? Dole Wave sits at the centre of all of this. End quote. I think that is a struggle that Britpop would have if it was a thing today. I mean, yeah, it sort of provokes the same idea of the band Sea Power dropping the British from their name. Right, right. And the, and the fine line between being proud or patriotic even, but not coming across as jingoist or or whatever. How to define Yeah, like how to define your country but not in relation to its colonial past. It's kind of yeah, it's all it's big themes. These are big themes. But um the Stroppies they don't get too in the weeds with them. Their music is concise and straightforward. Sound-wise, we've got very persistent, mostly unchanging motoric drums keeping the pace. We've got, of course, jangly, chiming, wobbly guitars. The good stuff. The good stuff. We've got some mumbly vocals that I think owe a lot to the Glasgow indie pop of bands like Orange Juice. Mmm, Glasgow, you say. (laughs) Now, Now, there is a city we could do a podcast episode on in the near future hypothetically if we wanted to just saying we could yeah we'll, t- we'll talk later <laughs> the members of the stroppies have invariably played in other melbourne dull wave bands including boom gates twerps tirana men prime time the blinds white walls this feels like very primitive calculators esque all these yes, funny names these little bands these little bands the supergroup label has even been tossed around in relation to the stroppies but I think you have to be famous for that to count. So instead, I would say that it reminds me more of like the Chicago's Hallow Gallo scene 
Um, sort of an oxymoron would be a dull wave supergroup, wouldn't it? Yeah, oh God, yeah, it really would. Yeah, they've got their own tour buses and stuff, but the government's paying for it all. For this album, Levity, then, the Stroppies were writing it during the longest lockdown in the world. Melbourne holds that title, apparently. Mm. And when they started out as a band, the Stroppies' initial aim was to create open-ended music, collaged quickly and haphazardly together. Uh, but this record is ostensibly the product of a bit more time and a bit more care, like while there's nothing going on, while there's nothing else to do inside. They fold in a new member, Zoe Monk, and they attribute the more expansive experimental sound partly to her, you know, in comparison to previous releases. So Monk is on keys and she does like tape loop stuff and vocal harmonies. And this is foregrounded immediately from the word go as the album opens with these wordless vocal loops that the instruments are then built in on top of one by one kind of minimalism style love that yeah this is a i think a really flexible record for me like we, we talk a lot about like when to listen to something as, as we just have but um i think it works on a sunday morning as it does on a late night train ride home from a gig or something it's it's jangle pop but unlike you know your kiwi juniors it's less snarky maybe right right um and just generally it's it's not self-important but nor is it meek nor watered down it's just very solid the writing is excellent uh there's a a warmness to it but it's kind of got that overcast australia in the yeah in the summer i guess a little bit of a haze a haze yeah as far as like an origin story goes i don't have a particularly exciting one i tentatively came across this band when writing about Dollwave for another piece I wrote on Jangle, Jangle Pop. But um, that was in regards to another Melbourne band and another great contender for the current pick, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever, who you mentioned at the top. One thing about Australia is they know how to name a band. But uh, while we were, <laughs> you know, we're doing so many definitions and etymologies already, I want to talk about the band name, which I had never heard before. I guess you are more familiar with the word stroppy, but per Britannica.com, stroppy is British slang for, quote, easily annoyed and difficult to deal with, which I think is kind of ironic because I think this band, you know, and this album are a delight. Flexible is a word you used. I think that's a good word. Like maybe the rhythms, the motoric beats are a little bit tetchy, um, but there's also this kind of easy, unbothered quality to the songs overall. I also may just be totally misreading the Australian nuance of it. Um, and I guess anyone looks agreeable next to primitive calculators in the birthday party. <laughs> I think that about brings us to feature track time. Now we've got our definitions out of the way. I've gone with the irreverently named Smiler's Strange Politely, which is track two. This is an episode of track twos today. Yes. Um, I like the way the two vocalists sing in unison here. I think their voices complement each other really well. I also like how prominent the bass is. It's louder even than the guitars, which is something I think you rarely hear in indie rock, indie pop. Um, like the bass is definitely driving the song and you've got this taut single string guitar line like pleading underneath. Hmm. There's a quote from co-vocalist Angus Lord and he explains that the title of this song had been kicking around my notebook for a few years and I'd been unsuccessfully trying to attach it to different musical ideas to no avail. 
it's an inversion of the phrase strangers smile politely i feel like he didn't need to like explain <laughs> that like we know angus <laughs> like it took me a couple times but i did get there yeah um and then he continues i eventually forgot about it until claudia from the band and myself were work- workshopping a set of poppy chords and lyrics that and that phrase re-emerged out of the ether of my mind up until that point, I've been trying to set the phrase to something a little more abstract to match the tone of what those words evoke, but it turned out to work much better as a big pop hook. So all that is to say, I like that there isn't a profound concept here, really, because there's a time and place for both. But I think building a song around just a, a phrase that sticks in your mind or whatever is a pretty cool way to approach writing. Yeah, and sometimes I think you have to write a song just to get a phrase stuck in somebody else's head. And (laughs) I have spent the last week just rotating the words Smiler Strange Politely in my head. So this one, a resounding success. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 46, Smiler Strange Politely by The Stroppies. It's time to get into our cool picks. And to start us off, Hayden, I want to tell you a story. A year or two ago, I was at a friend's birthday party and I was dressed a little, let's say, flamboyantly, as I sometimes am. I've got the dangly rainbow earrings and such, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And this guy from my friend's church band comes up to me, who I've never really met before, comes up to me and he says, Hey, I'm sorry if this is weird, but I'm getting a vibe from you. And I freeze <laughs> and I say, oh, yeah. And I'm so worried. Like, what wild out of pocket thing is this guy going to say to me? Hmm. But he says, yeah, are you into indie music? And first, <laughs> I'm so relieved. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, man, you could say I'm into indie music. And so I ask him, you know, what What do you recommend? What are you into? And he tells me I got to listen to King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And I'm like, all right, cool. I know of them. They have like a billion records. Where do I start? And Hayden, the clouds part over this backyard in Arlington. A beam of light shines down from the heavens. And he says the name of my cool pick for the episode. Nonagon Infinity. Nonagon Infinity. It's like a god voice (laughs) from the skies. That is incredible. 2016's Nonagon Infinity by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. How do I sum up this band? How am I gonna how am I gonna sum up this band? These guys originally formed in 2010 as a very kind of bluesy, psychedelic garage rock band. Their debut record was called 12 Bar Brews. Gives you a kind of an indication of their sense of humor. In the last 14 (laughs) years since then, they have released 25 studio albums total, spanning Prog, electronic rock, thrash metal, kraut rock, jazz fusion, microtonal funk. I could go on, but I won't. Because believe it or not, I do respect your time, Hayden. <laughs> what I find interesting, um, aside from the fact that someone asks you if you're into indie music, is, uh, you know, this band, they're not putting out just two albums consistently a year. Sometimes it's like four albums in one year and then nothing yeah. for a a year or two like what right what are they doing is incredible the way that they tell the story of this band it was the side project that they all played in every so often to kind of blow off steam and goof off away from all their other respective bands and now they release as many albums in a year as some indie labels do 
interestingly, they came on the scene right around the same time as their fellow Aussies, Tame Impala. But I think even among psychedelic rock bands, this is a totally different beast. Totally Nonagon Infinity. <laughs> Nonagon Infinity is their eighth album. It's their magnum opus, in my opinion. It's the crown jewel of this dragon's horde of a catalog. King Gizzard has made so many albums since 2016, but when their fans make flowcharts and infographics about how to get into them, this is still basically the universal starting point. Basically, everyone agrees this is the one. Okay, that's comforting. I'm comforted to know that I'm in the right place here because, you know, this is all very scary and very <laughs> overwhelming. It's a lot to take in. I trust you. The concept... I'm glad that you trust me. I couldn't bring this to just anybody, but I know this is a safe place. The concept for this album is very simple. There are nine tracks, hence Nonagon. Each one runs seamlessly into the next, and the last one connects right back to the first one, hence Infinity. You can play it on a loop, and it's a never-ending rock and roll Mobius strip, which it gives the album a really nice sense of momentum. But honestly, I have to tell you, the concept is not even in the top nine coolest things about this album. This is such a Taylor record. It's scratching a similar itch, I think, to Me Rex with that sort of concept for the sake of it. Yeah, it's a really great... That's a really great point that I hadn't even thought of. But there's a lot of overlap here when you've got the dinosaurs and the dragons. You've got the <laughs> the albums that are designed to be played on shuffle and the album designed to be played on loop. I guess you could call Mega Bear and Nonagon Infinity sort of like spiritual siblings as albums. Mm. Um, I'm going to have to get back into this and um i'm gonna have to what i mean is i'm gonna have to go think about this and get back to you on the deep, deep connection across yeah. continents between these projects but before we do anything else i kind of want to hear from you hayden because this is not the first time i've tried to get you to listen to this album and so what did you think of this the first time you heard it what did you think of king gizzard coming into this um i may have told you this story before about sitting on a grass mound at primavera sound that's a nice rhyme Next to uh, Rian from Wet Leg, of all oh, people. I say hey. next to, I mean like near enough to awkwardly gush to. And <laughs> the band playing at the bottom of the grassy mound was King Gizzard. And I hadn't heard them before seeing them. And I think, you know, we were so far away that it didn't do anything for me. And I dismissed them as Guitar Hero Core, the and distant... That's not- that's not a, a, the wrong way to characterize them, but go on. Yeah, I think I could just hear the distant, vaguely heavy metal sounding rumbles. And also mm-hmm. remember, I'm not as cool as you. I was waiting for Yola Tango to come on and sing about autumn sweaters. Anyway, I wish I'd heard this album before seeing them because it absolutely rocked my bloody socks off. Yeah, and, it does. And, you know, to be fair, it's been a grower. I, I yeah. did instantly like the first track with a distorted harmonica and that kraut rock beat going on robot stop is the song's name but as a whole piece it took me a few spins to really get it and i think i get it now i think it's music i'd put on in a zombie apocalypse Hmm. or just any apocalypse and yeah i really like it i really like the song evil death roll yeah uh, which has that motric beat for like seven minutes with uh-huh. one chord and the wacky sound effects yeah it's it's like if Sterilab would dudes with long hair <laughs> yeah that's that's a great way to put it for me this record was like an instant fave the first time i heard it after i got this recommendation i i put this record on i loved it i immediately went and i worked through their whole catalog i literally couldn't stop myself i have now heard every king gizzard album which is 16 hours and 21 minutes, according to Exclaim Magazine, who have done the maths. 
goes by like that. Just like that. <laughs> yeah. 16 hours of my life. It's like I, I, I thought it. it'd be longer. Like, that's not even a whole day. They need to put out some more records. They've been slacking. Get on it, boys. What are you yeah. doing? <laughs> I'm not saying that this is what happened to you that first time, but I do think it's very easy to overthink King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard or, or to see them as a novelty and be kind of disappointed they aren't actually weirder than they are musically. But what I love about this band is that you can overthink them if you want to. They leave room for that. But what's cool about them is actually very uncomplicated. At their core, they really are just a good rock band. They take everything that I like about less accessible classic rock bands and just make it more fun. It's like they've got a big dial on all the amps that says fun, and they just <laughs> flip that with a 10. These amps go to fun. They've got like the nerdy kind of prog rock ambition of a band like Rush, but they've got much, much bigger hooks and riffs. They've got... You know, those, like I said, the big pentatonic riffs that you get, like, with any 80s hard rock band, any 80s metal band worth their salt. But you don't get all the show-offy cock rock solos. It's just the fun parts. No matter what they do genre-wise, you can trust there's going to be cool riffs and catchy tunes, and that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. I'm getting, like, a bit of Kiss as well, like the good parts of Kiss, maybe. <laughs> yes, the good parts of Kiss. I think that's spot on. Yeah, that's in I... there for sure. I definitely agree with all this. I really like that, that angle. And, you know, I'm not trying to be dismissive because a lot of their work has really thoughtful experimental music theory. They do a lot of microtonal stuff. They did a record that was all based around some specific chord changes, kind of like a um, giant steps kind of concept. Uh, mm. They have really interesting lyrics, too, sometimes. Like they find very unique ways of talking about climate change on songs like Road Train from this record, Nautagon Infinity, or the entirety of their album Petrodragonic Apocalypse, which is kind of self-explanatory, really <laughs> cleverly portraying resource extraction as a kind of satanic ritual, or at least the heavy metal iconography of satanic ritual. It's kind of brilliant to me. Mm. But also, like, come on, man, this stuff is just cool in a very, like, easy to explain 12-year-old boy kind of way. And I celebrate that. Like, <laughs> songs about robots and dragons and wizards are just cool minor pentatonic riffs are cool at the time of nonagon infinity king gizzard had two drummers and that does lend itself to like some weird proggy rhythms you get on this record but also do you know what happens when two guys play a snare drum roll at the same time it sounds cool <laughs> perhaps this is the most appropriate pick for the cool category since we started this endeavor then for my money it's up there there's a great bit in this new book by Rob Harvilla, the amazing critic and podcaster, he has this new book, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, and he has a great line that I think applies here, where he talks about the fact that when bands talk about going back to basics, making a no-bullshit rock record, they usually fall completely flat because if you took out all the bullshit, there would be nothing left. He says, quote, rock and roll, depending on the era and subgenre and the specific band, is anywhere between 85 and 99.7% bullshit. That's the point. The bullshit is the point, end quote. <laughs> and I think the magic trick of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard is that superficially they are 100% bullshit. There are six guys in the band. They've made a stupid number of albums. Most of them have wacky titles like Nonagon Infinity or Infest the Rat's Nest or whatever. And they have all these very gimmicky concepts to go with them. This one's a jazz fusion album, guys. You know, this one is, this one is, is called Quarters and it's 10... 10 minute 10 second songs so that it adds up perfectly to 40 minutes 40 seconds <laughs> just because ridiculous. it's ridiculous but if you actually listen to them then you think 
wait a minute. These are all just like super listenable 40 minute rock records. There's like mm-hmm. a startlingly low percentage of actual bullshit in the music. And I start to think like, is it possible there's actually not any at all? Is it possible they've embraced the bullshit of rock and roll so thoroughly they've transcended it altogether? Fucking brilliant. You should be a music critic, you know. That's genuinely that's very smart though. I it's all very abstract, I think. And so to put what I mean into more concrete perspective, I just want to say that like if you like the white stripes, you'll probably like this album and especially the song Gamma Knife. They're so intimidating from a distance and then you get up close and you're like this is just a great like bluesy hard rock and song. Right. So what you're saying is comparing one band to another is all music criticism is. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Easy. That's exactly what I'm saying. Stick with me, Hayden. I'll show you the ropes. <laughs> that is a helpful comparison. I, I think it's like I feel like it's another band actually, the White Stripes, where there's a lot of artifice you have to sort of ignore to get mm. into what's actually cool about them. And um they do, you know, they're not that similar as two bands, but I think spiritually there's a there's another thread there we could follow. Mm-hmm. But writing this segment also dredged up something from my own past I completely forgot about. I think one of the reasons I love Nonagon Infinity specifically so much is that it appeals to a childhood fantasy of mine where when I was in a high school garage band, I had this dream of writing a sci-fi concept album, which turned out to be way, way, way outside my own technical ability. I never got past the stage where you like you write a couple of songs because you come up with the cool little riffs that just sort of appear to you out of the ether when you're playing with the like wild space effects on your yeah. solid state practice amp that you get, you know, for your first guitar amp. Oh, absolutely. We had one of our guitarist's friends dress up in a robot costume, made of cardboard and tinfoil and dance on stage with us once. And that's about as far as it got. But this album and King Gizzard's catalog feels like the vicarious realization of that childhood dream of mine. It's what I would have wanted to make, or it's actually better than the way I would have imagined it because I was too hung up on the bullshit. I was thinking about narrative. I was thinking about things that get in the way of just rocking. I, this anecdote, you've got two brilliant King Gizzard's anecdotes how do we get them this information they need to know they need you need to be a robot dancing on stage with them that would actually be my dream job i think (laughs) if they ever put out an application sort of like how smashing pumpkins put out that application like if you want to be our guitarist then send us a resume yes what's going on that resume that's (laughs) worked in the supermarket when i was 16 if king gizzard ever wants somebody to be the robot dancing on stage with them then i would i would hand in my resume in a heartbeat yes but anyway all of which is just to say that like king gizzard doesn't let anything get in the way of rocking and if they did they couldn't have made 25 records and that's the inspiring thing about them to me that's how you transcend the bullshit i think because albums can be deep and they can be life-changing but also they can just be albums i've had musician friends tell me they worry about releasing their work because it's not the perfect ideal version that they imagined or it's not as good as hypothetical thing they could make and i think king gizzard's catalog is a reminder that you should probably just do it because you can always do something else later and i think working that way keeps you from getting in your own way that's such a smart take and i think you understand king gizzard more than anyone who's not in the band and i think you should write <laughs> something really one of long. these days one of these um, days i'll go long on king gizzard yeah that makes a lot of sense to me like in our fly-by-night social media era that you would just be sticking out albums, bada-bing, bada-boom. Not every four years, but just the constant stream because it's better aligned with the throwaway-ness. 
here it right. is. If you don't like it, try this one. Or if you don't like it, try this one. And, you know, I feel like they'll be doing it anyway, regardless yeah. um, if people were listening or not. Because if you're making this many albums, you are compelled, you are com- possessed to yes. write. Compulsion is the yeah. word. It is a compulsion. In a weird way, they have this this sort of quality in common with primitive calculators and the little bands, that sort of disposable nature of it. But I think that's mm. kind of the only point of commonality. Um, but, you know, it's not to say they're completely divorced from the, you know, music scene of Melbourne. They're a very international band now, but for a number of years, they did host a local festival called Gizfest. Unfortunately which, named. Yeah, it's unfortunate that they call things that giz becomes the prefix that gets affixed to everything associated with them. <laughs> Their fans are giz heads. Their festival is giz fest. Ooh, it's giz challenging. It's challenging. Yeah. Challenging. Um, but, you know, they did this festival with other local psych rock acts. And also among their vast discography, you can find a collaborative EP they did with fellow Melbourne band Tropical Fuckstorm. Sorry again, mom. That's what the band's called. Don't know what to tell you. Australians um, love this Wes. So do Australia. We loves naming their band after a swear <laughs> so tell me on the most accessible king gizzard album what is the most accessible track are we going for the most accessible track which is the one that we're showing people i think it is the most accessible track or it's the one that has stuck with me the most and the most consistently and that is big fig wasp which is big such a fun big wasp it's a fun thing to say it's a great series of syllables say it again big fig wasp big fig wasp it is spiritual relation of strangers smilers stranging politely yeah i think so and the other thing is that the main riff on this song is just so catchy and it's simple enough that even i can play it on guitar which is really fun to do it's 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 just the first position of the you know minor pentatonic scale and as usual there's not a big solo in this song they just play another really similar riff but with a wah pedal (laughs) that's how good the riff is don't overthink it following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 47, Big Fig Wasp by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. I honestly need to rest my voice a little bit. So Hayden, why don't you tell me about something (laughs) equally cool, also from Melbourne. Not as many dragons, not as many wizards involved, but cool nonetheless. Cool nonetheless. Yeah, but no mythical beings whatsoever. This cool pick is by a band called Camp Cope, who very tragically broke up last year. And we are still mourning. We're still in mourning. Honestly devastated. Earnestly devastated. Um, Camp Cope have three records, and we we spitballed about which one to choose. And I deferred to you a bit because I wasn't sure, but we both together decided that How to Socialize and Make Friends, their second album from 2018, has just got to be the one yes so that is my pick for something cool uh this is pretty unanimously considered to be the power emo trio's high watermark melding jangly plaintive alt country and emotive diaristic storytelling that touches on relationships self-care ambition and drive aimlessly driving aimlessly (laughs) cycling sexism (laughs) sex the music industry's systemic patriarchy love religion and rescue dogs to name a few all right (laughs) they say nothing good happens after 2 a.m but most of georgia mac's songs take place around that time the exception that proves the rule or something Mm. 
It's um, a relief to me on the night shift that some people <laughs> have good things to say yeah. about after 2 a.m. Yeah, lots of the songs take place in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, it's nice to know that you're awake as well. Just Yes, exactly. Yeah. As well as Mac on vocals and guitar, the three pieces rounded out by Kelly Dawn Helmrich on bass and Sarah Thompson on drums. They formed in 2015 and ended their camp last year but yes what are the defining characteristics of camp cloak sound taylor i think you put yes. it very succinctly when you told me they're so minimal that they sneak up on you i couldn't yeah. agree with this more it's not just that the music is a streamlined conduit for the lyrics though because you know the bass lines they're walking all over the place it's more the fact that everything has its place everything has its job and nothing is superfluous yeah there's a great lyric on the first song on this record, which is called The Opener, um, which I think is instructive here. You know, Georgia Mac is sort of reeling off a lot of of frustrating things about being, you know, a musician, being in a band, being in scenes that are controlled by men. And the quote is, it's another man telling us we're missing a frequency. Yeah. And Camp Cope is always working with minimal arrangements limited frequency ranges in their sound and if you're that type of guy you can convince yourself that they're missing something but they're not they sound <laughs> yeah. like this on purpose they know better than you they meant they meant to do this and i also feel like it's so important to note the cleanness of the guitar on these records like you use the word power emo and i do think that's true and that makes it all the more striking that you've got such clean guitar going on here yeah that is so important really good thing to pick up on the Power Emo label is one that they applied to themselves, just to say, because mm. I shouldn't get credit for that. But yes, it almost sounds like that clean DI, direct input sound, no amp, no effects, nothing. It's the opposite of shoegaze, really. Yes. And I wondered if that's, you know, partly that's, I think, to give the maximum amount of space to Georgia Max's words and to her voice. But it could, you could also read that as a bit of a rebellion against just overproduced mainstream rock and pop and indie that right. is, you know, largely helmed by guys with guitars. So right. they could be playing into the words of the opener in just their very setup. And yeah, again, daring people to question their sonic choices. I feel like Camp Cope are so rightfully revered in our circles that they about qualify as a classic pick now. Uh, nevertheless, there are so many cool things about this album. I like the faux self-help title, uh, uh -huh. which is how to socialize and make friends. I like how that is ironically masquerading as like a guidebook, but actually, you know, it sort of is. It's packed full of relatable life lessons. There's that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I think is uh -huh. the, the real life reference. And on track two, Georgia doxes a guy for his book collection um which is cooler than doxing someone for their record collection i think oh yeah oh way cooler are you kidding <laughs> yeah. she says yeah you should have seen his well she sings yeah you should have seen his book collection it was all how to socialize and how to make friends yeah i guess we both got our problems and areas to improve i know one of mine is to go a night without sympathizing with you drag him <laughs> oh my god that's so brutal <laughs> Yeah. Because you and I are the type of guy that we are, I also can't not bring up that on the cover of Georgia Mac's solo album, which I should say is also a great album that if you're listening to this podcast, you should go check out. 
you can see that Georgia Mac has a gold sounds tattoo with the Z and everything. Uh, I Googled it. Turns <laughs> out that's also her Instagram handle is gold sounds with a Z underscore. Um, the songs aren't quite as abstract, but she is a pavement fan, right? A hundred percent. She's got to be a pavement fan. Like their West Coast sounding laid back indie rock vibe is very reminiscent of songs like gold sounds. I'm sure that Stephen Malkus would approve of this. I completely forgot, but you actually did bring this up when you wrote about Camp Cope for your very good review of their third album, Running with the Hurricane, you know, for Flood magazine. Yeah, thank you. I actually forgot about that as well. Um, I've referenced that, but yeah, when when doing some reading for this episode, I saw that when this album came out in 2018, it was Bandcamp's album of the day, and the writer Ali Jane Grossen references Pavement too. She writes, simplistic chord progressions are comfortingly familiar. Brackets, yes, pavement tapes made their way to Australia. Close brackets. As the record drifts from up-tempo punk to 90s jangle to emo bass lines. So there you have it. And uh, Confirmed. Yeah, you mentioned that Flood magazine piece. That's how actually how I came across the band. It was our mutual editor, Mike, who sent his round-robin email of albums that needs to be reviewed and... I checked out Fuel on the List and really liked this um, this album, Running with the Hurricane, their third one. But you have a, a cooler Camp Cope origin story, I believe. Cooler than mine. Like, Please do share. It's, like, it's one degree cooler because I found them by, you know, Googling and not by email. But it, <laughs> anyway, I'll tell this story just because it's one of those very rare times I was early on something cool. I got into Camp Cope after their first album because in the fall of 2016, they put out a single called Keep Growing as part of a split EP with a kind of similar sounding Philadelphia band called Cayetana, who I had seen open for the Menzingers. They were great. Their album was great. Um, Love that band. And that split that they did was one of the first things I ever tried to write about for myself back when I was getting into blogging in college. I was just kind of casting around Googling like what's coming out this week. And I found out about this split by you know, these two bands and I knew one of them and I should check it out. And yeah, right away, I loved all the elements of Camp Cope as we've been talking about. There's an especially killer baseline on Keep Growing that I can just sum it up and listen to in a loop on my head whenever and, you know, forever, basically. Yeah. Also, though, it was an especially powerful song to me because of the chorus, which is very simply about growing your hair out, you know, whether anyone else likes it or not. And that spoke to me because it came out at a time when I was growing my hair out for basically the first time in my life during this awkward, very late coming of age period that happens in college sometimes. And coincidentally, I haven't had it cut except to, you know, trim, clean up the ends ever since that time. And now that the band is gone, I kind of feel like I need to let it keep growing in memory of them just indefinitely. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I love that they've been with you since you started writing and they've been with your hair since it started growing. Yes, and they always will be. And it's that made it so much it, it it really hit me when they broke up, you know, like that was one of those band breakups where I really I really felt that yeah. because I still will just like put on that song sometimes and just just feel that feeling. But let's reel it back in. We've got to talk about your featured track from How to Socialize. And I honestly love that even though this is our Melbourne episode, you chose the song on this record that's about going back to Adelaide. How how far are we talking? Yeah, apparently that is an eight-hour drive, uh, and I think this is the perfect music for that drive. Yes, I am going against type here, and even though Camp Cope's most famous song, arguably, is the opener, 
the opening track of this and i always pick openers (laughs) (laughs) i haven't this time um that's because the track anna caught me um first things first i read a line from it from the first verse as being a reference to the weaker lands and their you know suite of songs about the tute the cat because the lyric from the song anna is the cat's been crying out wandering all alone around the house saying i really hope you're happier where you are now Uh, oh that i love that line that is so so that could have been lifted straight out of the matute song yeah and you know relatedly john k sampson especially on his solo work uses a disarmingly clean guitar tone so certainly possible that georgia mack is a fan this song i think is also a bit of a testament to the power of just creating music because the chorus is just get it all out put it in a song just get it all out write another song king gizzard that's what they're doing <laughs> i think that's what georgia mack's doing she really belts yeah. that in the chorus and while this isn't the catchiest song on the album it certainly exemplifies all of those camp cope ingredients that we mentioned the bass is plinking away in the higher register outlining counter melodies that are constantly on the move the drumming meanwhile is straight and solid and then mac is playing these open bar chords with the upper strings ringing out mm. giving a really bright open windows down kind of sound to lead you back to adelaide you said it and you know you said we weren't going to have any mythical creatures in this segment but we do get a cat so i think that evens out those following along in the cities to love playlist we now invite you to play track 48 anna by Camp Cope. So, it's time for our honorable mentions, and in the always relevant category of cool bands my cool wife got me into, the Lux Smiths, <laughs> specifically their album Naturalist. I also have to shout out the folk pop duo O Pep, who I saw open for the Mountain Goats back when I was in college, and I was getting into Camp Cope and all that. Whatever you think you are doing after this episode, I'm going to need you to make room in your schedule to go listen to the song Tea, Milk, and Honey from the album Stadium Cake by Opep. It actually kind of pains me to not put that song on our playlist, but, you know. I actually did one better and I listened to it before listening to this podcast episode. Somebody's angling for extra credit. (laughs) Yeah, I would uh, double down on the shout out for Georgia Mac solo stuff. Also, Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever, who we mentioned... And the unfortunately named Dick Diver. <laughs> unfortunately, he says. It's kind of par for the course here in uh, in Melbourne. I put my thumb on the scale a little bit and convinced you to talk about Camp Cope. And I don't regret it, but I do wish we'd gotten to say Dick Diver a few more times. <laughs> I also want to shout out some of the amazing post-punk happening in Melbourne right now, picking up where bands like The Birthday Party left off. I recently got into the latest album from Emil and the Sniffers, which is absolutely killer. Can't say enough good things about that record. Go check it out. Now, I'm excited for our next episode. Um, I've just poured myself a glass of OJ. Oh. Orange juice. And I'll get some Vaseline's. Yep. We'll both get to feeling a little bit sinister, I think. We're going to Glasgow, and it's going to make you want a primal scream. <laughs> what have we got planned in Glasgow? <laughs> For more from the hosts of Cities to Love, check out the episode description, where you can find links to the Cities to Love playlist, as well as some of our other music writing work. Thanks to Ultimate Overshare for the use of Gotta Juice, which is our intro and outro music. 
And most of all, thanks to you for listening. This has been Cities to Love. Cities to Love.